0: This is EvarionX, and welcome to The Candid Frame. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Photo Biz Exposed, an interview podcast that takes the mystery out of the business of photography. Learn from some of the industry's best and most savvy photographers as Andrew Helmich, deftly explores how artists make photography their life's work find out more by visiting the podcast at photobizx.com forward slash tcf we're pleased to announce the release of the first in a series of tcf branded ebooks for 2015 the candid frame on street photography is a book in which i share tips and techniques that have helped me to develop as a street photographer and i'm sharing it with you for free Just sign up for the Candid Frame mailing list by visiting the website or clicking on the link in the show notes. Get it today, read it, and then get out in the street and start shooting. Despite the many changes that are taking place in the world of journalism, the role of the photojournalist is as important today as it was in the past. It's these men and women who, whether they are on the front lines in a distant land or in the backyards of our own communities, that are telling the stories that need to be told. Amy Vitali is one of those photographers, and whether she's photographing in China, Gaza, or Bangladesh, she's always bringing a sensitivity to her storytelling that captures the true spirit of great photojournalism and photo documentary. We began our conversation by asking her about a statement that she made in which she says that her primary responsibility is to the people she photographs.
1: (laughs) I can't actually imagine any other way. I mean, why... I thought that we're there doing, telling people stories. It, I thought it was never about us.
0: Yeah, You know, when we think about the traditional photojournalists, like you see in TV and movies, it seems like they're in the pursuit of the story. And that the, the people that they're photographing are just, are just players, in, as if in a stage play. And it seems mm. like it's so little consideration for what actually is happening to these people, and that the story trumps everything else. And that's yeah. why I was so intrigued by by your thoughtfulness in terms of your approach, you know, to in, in your photo stories.
1: Yeah, that actually that that um that kind of makes me sad when that happens. Uh, I think maybe that's a function of the the business side of it. People are so hungry for the stories, but I think. Um, You know, I really try to remind myself always like, why, why are we here? And isn't it about the, you know, the people, the story, the, whatever the story it is. I mean, it's, it's, whether it's animals or people, whatever it may be it's not about us. I mean, it really, you're just simply the messenger. And I mean, I do see this real, I mean, even this year, it it couldn't be more timely where world press photos has really come into the, um, you know, in under the (laughs) gaze of, of everybody, because, um, you know, it's, it's tricky because we've been awarding people when it's, it's all about their style. And, and I, you know, I think that we teach a lot of kids coming out of school and, and give this message that the industry gives this message that you will be awarded by, you know, finding this, you know, unique style and vision. And I, you know, I think that's fine to have a, you know, an, an aesthetic, but I think when it becomes all about your aesthetic and you lose the substance and, and the reason of why we're here and what we're doing, something's gone wrong. And, um, I don't know. I just, I think that I've always felt that photography can be very abrasive and I struggled with that. And then I really found my, I think the way I've made peace with it is to realize that you can be this voice to people, you can empower them. And, um, I mean, that sounds cliche, but it really is true. I've had so many cases where, you know, you, you can do absolutely do justice to the people in their story, um, but I think it's incredibly important to remember that it's not about you ever.
0: Do you think it's a little harder to hold on to that altruism, especially when you're um, a young photographer, considering, you know, the the circumstances of journalism today, with the consolidation of media by fewer and fewer entities, the uh, the diminished outlets for really stories like of the type that you that you like to produce. Do you feel like it's it makes it more of a challenge to hold on to those those ideas and
1: good question i mean i do you think they're that the the ideas are that lofty i think <laughs> it's essential and and the you know the the basic thing to to do um i actually think that it creates a certain amount of authenticity and authenticity comes through when people look at it and know that it's real you know i mean that is also being eroded by the technology and Photoshop and all of these things. But I think that, you know, when you get to the heart of it, that's the most essential ingredient. And if you want to make a career in this as a documentary photographer, it's, it's more important than ever to, um, you know, to remain, you know, as, as I guess, honest as you can be. I don't, I mean, you know, that we're, I guess the lines are getting blurred very easily now because so many people are trying to, to make a living at this. You almost have to do some commercial work. And, and, but I think that it's important to remember when you're doing commercial work and when you're doing documentary work, they're not the same thing. And the rules are completely different, but I guess, um, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, it's becoming really challenging trying to make a living as a documentary photographer these days.
0: Well, it seems like your your whole approach is born uh, during your time visiting your sister in Guinea-Bissau, and tell me about why that experience was so pivotal to you and what you eventually came to do with the camera.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, actually, I began my career as a photo editor, working in uh, New York for Associated Press and also Washington, D.C. for them. And so I really understood before I became a photographer how the news works. And and I, I found holes in, in the coverage. And, and I guess when I say holes, I found a place for, for my own work. Meaning... I saw that we're always reacting to news instead of going a little deeper. I mean, I think that's changing, and we're seeing a lot more in-depth reporting where photographers and journalists are taking a lot more time to, to delve into the whys of story instead of just reacting to to events. and um, And so I went off. I went. I applied for this grant from the Alexia Foundation, and. Much to my delight and horror, I got it. <laughs> and so I went to this tiny country in West Africa called Guinea-Bissau. It's one of the most impoverished countries, still is. And I went there with a whole bunch of stereotypes about what I thought, you know, Africa was, according to what I read in the, in the newspaper and saw on the news. And when I got there, I realized, my God, we've been, um, you know, the way we portray the world – Uh, mainstream media, it's just, it's sad because we leave out this big piece of it. I mean, I I saw Africa in two ways. It was either, you know, war, famine, plague, or the other extreme. You can go on a beautiful safari and see, you know, the exotic animals and culture. But what I found when I got there was something really in between and something that it's, it's really, I think, how we uh, how the majority of people live. And the truth is, I found that we had more in common with each other than our differences. And that as journalists, we need to, we absolutely need to start highlighting more of our similarities than just the obvious um, sensationalistic differences, because that's what allows us to relate to one another. That's uh, that's going to create, you know, more understanding. and And I think that's really essential now more than ever.
0: When you were working in, as an editor, why do you think that that part of the story is being being left out?
1: Time. I mean, I think that a huge piece of it is time. It takes time to really go deep and, and learn and understand and, and let people tell their own stories instead of you jumping in with your idea. And essentially, most journalists have just a couple weeks maximum to go and tell a story. So they're, they parachute in. They're giving a tight, tight budget. Um, you know, staff reporters that, that actually lived in, in foreign countries, all those foreign bureaus are closing or have already closed. So there's not really a lot of people on the ground. I think a good thing is happening today where we're starting to hire more locals to tell their own stories. And I think that's really a good thing. Um, because I mean, I do think that it's, it's great to go and spend a lot of time in a place and try to communicate back, um, you know, a, a certain understanding, but, um, you really have to commit to it. And, and I think that two weeks is not enough.
0: How did you, your work as an editor help you when it came time for you as a photographer to pitch stories to to magazines or to newspapers? You know knowing what you did know from being on that side of the desk did it how did it help you in terms of um being able to to succeed
1: yeah, you know I actually that is some good advice for people starting out. I totally recommend going and working as an editor or interning at a news agency for a little bit on the desk before you actually hit the ground running because yeah, what did I learn well um i learned I learned how the news cycle works. And I also learned um, where they get their news and and how to and also making relationships with editors is is really important so that that really helped, but I think also finding holes and finding um, what works and what doesn't. how do you make a pitch? And I think that one thing, a lot of, you know, there are a lot of great stories out there, but they're not always visual. And so as a photographer, it's really your job, not only to imagine how the story can be, but to articulate that. And you've got to be a good writer in the pitch. You've got to visualize to your editor how the story is going to look, because it's just, it's just not enough sometimes to pitch a great story. We have to, you know, they don't they don't take a lot of risks and they need to know that you're going to come back with the goods that are going to be visual.
0: Can you give me an example of an early story and, and how you pitched it in order to get the editor interested it? Yeah.
1: I can tell you about a failure and how um, (laughs) I learned so much from it, but I I learned, I was living in the Czech Republic and I learned that four of the last um, Northern, white rhinos that are a species that are going extinct. There's only, at the time, there were only eight of them left on the planet. And these were the last four that were able to breed. And so in this last ditch effort to save this entire species, they wanted to move them back to Africa, hoping that they would breed there. So I heard about this story and I thought, that's fantastic. I have unique access. Nobody else had it. And here I could tell the story about the end of a species. And, you know, these, these are species that have lived for thousands of years, but they couldn't survive mankind. I mean, how powerful is that? So I write out all these proposals, send them off, and guess what? I got rejected by every single editor. Every one of them. And I thought, okay, wait. <laughs> what is going on? Clearly, it's not the story. The story is obviously good. It was my pitch. That was the problem. And so I wrote some of them back and I said, "Hey, what what was wrong with that?" And they all said the same thing. "Great story, but we don't we don't see this as a visual story. They're going to move these rhinos in crates and you'll never see them." And I said, oh, okay, well, actually, that's not true. And I basically had to rewrite the proposal and spell out to them and, you know, submit some some images of what I had already shot to help them imagine and reimagine how beautiful this story could be. And, um, of course, all of them accepted after that. And that was just a great lesson. I mean, I think a lot of uh, photographers need to understand you are going to get rejected. You've got to have a thick skin and you've got to really look deep and figure out, you know, what am I doing wrong and how can I, um, you know, how can I come back with a better proposal? And a big
0: part of that pinch is being able to convince them that you're the right person, the only person to do the mm-hmm. story.
1: Yeah. And I've actually had it happen. I mean, one thing to be careful about too is I've actually had this happen where a, a magazine took my took my awesome story idea and gave it to somebody else, which I think is highly unethical, but it, it does happen. And what do you do? I mean, I think that, you you know, that does happen, but you cannot let it stop you. And, you know, you can't get so angry and let it, you know, tear a hole in your heart. You just have to keep plotting forward. And at the end of the day, you know, a lot of times I end up investing in the story myself first and doing a large part of it and then pitching it later um, and and sort of getting finishing funds to help finish it. But, you know, it's a, it's a tough business. And I think a lot of people don't understand how much you have to invest in yourself. I mean, even today, I'm working for, you know, I'm the clients I dreamt of working for national geographic. Um, and, and Nikon's made me an ambassador and, and people just assume that the doors are open. It's easy. The paths are paved. It's not, it is still every day is, you know, it's really a lot of hard work to make this, um, make this a career.
0: When it comes to being a professional photographer, learning how to take a good picture is the easy part. It's the business of photography that's the greater challenge. And while there are many books dedicated to starting and maintaining a business, some of the most valuable information comes from those who've done it before you and have succeeded. Photobiz Exposed is a unique podcast that focuses on the business of wedding and portrait photography from advertising, sales, marketing, and more. Hosted by Andrew Helmich, the show provides valuable insight into what it takes to move from enthusiast to pro. There's a free and a premium version of the show, and you can check out select premium episodes by taking advantage of the special offer Andrew has made available to TCF listeners. Just visit photobizx.com forward slash TCF and discover what it takes to earn a living doing what you love. So let's talk about, you know, the the practical things in terms of deciding what story to to pursue. Because as much as you love making photographs and meeting these people and telling these amazing stories, you have to be practical about making a living. So how do those considerations play into you deciding which stories you're going to focus your energies on and, and going to make the effort to try and convince an editor or a publication to, to, to allow you to be able to, you know, tell that story?
1: sure that 's actually an excellent question, and something i um, I think long and hard about and i I mean I think that you have to balance it out i mean some Some assignments bring in a lot of money, and you do those because it funds the documentary work. but I think it 's really important, especially when you 're starting out, to always always have a personal project a body of work that represents what you want to be doing. Because if you only accept the, you know, the well-paying jobs that may not be where your heart is, those are the only assignments you will ever get if you don't have that body of work to show anybody. So I really um, am very conscientious about how I spend my time. And I basically, I think I have these, um, I'll try to remember my three – it has to be two of three. It's like it either has to be um, really meaningful, it has to push me and make me grow and learn as a journalist and photographer, or it has to pay a lot of money. And it needs to be two out of those three. And if not, you know, I think all of us should create – Create, like literally write down what's important to you. Is it making lots of money? Because if it is, documentary is not the path you want to go down. Is it doing meaningful work that you think is going to make a difference in the world? Great. That's great. But, you know, how are you going to pay the bills? So you've got to figure out a balance. And so also – Uh, You know, find a theme in your work that is consistent throughout your career. And I think jumping around to too many assignments um, can also really take you away from creating that body of work that will um, really become the calling card for future assignments.
0: What's wonderful about your work is that you not only tell wonderful stories in your photo essays, but you also create beautiful singular images. And it's it's wonderful to see a photographer who is able to blend the two. But I wonder, um, early on, was that sort of a, a a challenge to think both in terms of story and think of uh, the aesthetics of a photograph, or or no?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think actually the, the problem is most photographers are only thinking about the aesthetics and not the story. So that is what differentiates, um, you know, a National Geographic photographer. They understand storytelling and they understand it's not just about making beautiful images. Of course, you want the images to be, you know, have this aesthetic about them, but it's really essential to, to find the storyline. And actually something interesting happened in 2000 2000- 2009, I was asked by Nikon to make a video for one of their cameras that had just come out, the DSLRs that shoot HD video. And that changed the course of my career because I think shooting film makes you a better still photographer as a storyteller. Becoming a filmmaker has absolutely made me a better photographer. I think about story differently. I really, you know, I I spend time kind of scripting it out. Um, And of course, I don't mean that I go in and manufacture things. I just mean that I really think about where the story is going and how I'm going to visualize it along the way, what pieces are essential, and also not to repeat yourself. I think a lot of photographers will take these beautiful images and put them all together but they're kind of repetitive they say the same thing and you've got to find you know i have broken it down in, into all these different elements that need to be in a story you've got to have a, an opener you've got to have the moment you have to have the crescendo moment and detail shots and and um and an ender and it has to almost be like a book you're reading and except that it's in a visual um medium
0: Okay. Uh, could you talk about developing a story? There's this one that you did on the back in oil boom for National Geo. Mm-hmm. and I'm really fascinated because it, it going in, it seems like a big story uh, in terms mm-hmm. of you know the the economic and the personal impact of this you know discovery of it oil. It is, in and here. that
1: actually would not be the story I choose because, to be honest, that was a that was one of those parachute stories where I literally had four days to shoot it. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was not a faster, st- I mean not a long-term story, but you know sometimes you don't have the um the luxury of staying months. So in that case, you know, I do a lot of research and I try to make contact with people before I ever get there. And and intimacy is important and trust from your subjects. So it really helped in that case that I'm from Montana. I mean, I live here. And um and it you know sort of coming from um Coming, being a local actually makes a difference, but it's, it's tough to. Parachute in and have a really short time to tell a big story like that.
0: So, so how, so how do you do it? So, if you only got four well, days,
1: research, research. You know, sort of figure out what are the main things you're going to try to hit. And I mean, honestly, I could go back and spend a lot more time on that. Um, getting access is is really tough. So, you know, the the oil companies um, are much more savvy, and they don't want photographers in there. So, getting access to things is is really tricky. And I think that's... That means you have to do a lot of homework before you even land on the ground
0: so okay, tell me of a uh, of a, another story where you did have the luxury of, of time
1: hmm okay, so I spend years on stories and um and I'll take one story which was kashmir in um it's a it's a beautiful place between India and Pakistan, which those two countries have been fighting a conflict over since nineteen forty seven And I got there and uh, it just captured my heart right away. And a couple things about it, I knew that there were not, I mean, it was not in the international news very much. They didn't want it to be. And I wanted to, I also saw the holes in the story, which I think that it was always told from the paradigm of this geopolitical conflict. You always saw images of the blood and the gore, but you never really saw that many pictures about this beautiful culture that was being lost to the conflict. So I found my peace, you know, or the perspective that I wanted to come from. And then I really just took time building relationships. And that takes, that takes a lot of time. And so by the end of my time there, people were actually calling me when things were happening, um, letting me know and inviting me into their lives. And, um, you know, I guess, I guess it really is just, for me, I mean, everybody has a different way of working, but I think it is about getting intimacy and trust and getting, you know, so that you're not always looking, people are inviting you in.
0: How, how important is it to have um, a subject that people can relate to in the story in order to effectively tell the tale?
1: Ooh, you just hit on the most important thing for me. That is, that is um, critical. I. I've covered so many stories, and I think that we are taught as photojournalists to go in and and capture the most sensational aspect. Of course, they make great, powerful images, but we don't always stay around and do the quiet pieces of the story, and I think that those are are really essential. Those are what allow us to relate to people, and those are going to motivate action and motivate change, not just the drama. And so, in every story, whether you know, I started out as a conflict photographer covering Gaza um, and, and the Israel uh, Palestinian conflict, um, Afghanistan, Kashmir—all these, you know, very, um, you know, dramatic uh, stories. And then I realized, like, you literally turn the corner and you and you realize, well, it's not like that's the only thing happening in those places. The violence is happening, but what about the people? And why aren't we showing the everyday life there? The things that will allow somebody 2,000 miles away to relate to them. And that happened to me in Gaza where I was taking a picture of, you know, I was with like half a dozen journalists and we're all photographing the violence. And that's what we were asked and encouraged to do. And I turned the corner and found literally on the same block this beautiful couple getting married in the midst of all of this. And I thought, you know, that's incredible. This expression of love right in the middle of all of this. Why don't we show these stories too? Yep. And that was this real turning point for me. And I look for that in everything. And now I've started, I, I think in the last five years, I'm really focusing on stories about, um, you know, the, 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 the natural world, the environment, um, I think it's, just as important as all these conflicts. And, and I'm looking at the same things in a way like I, you know, poaching in Africa, um, we're losing all these species, but I don't think showing pictures of dead animals is going to motivate anybody. I need to find the stories of um, human connection and the, you know, the positive stories in the midst of all the horror. Do
0: do you find that when you find that sort of critical person to to tell the story, that it puts an onus on you that's much more greater. You take on a feeling of even greater responsibility as a result of telling the story through an individual narrative rather than telling sort of a broader story of what's happening.
1: Oh yeah, you know you you're um, you're held accountable. These people know you. They're um, you know not that I mean you need to stay okay. You know, there's that whole thing about objectivity in reporting. Absolutely. I mean, the truth is, though, I think every story, objectivity is is um, you know we all we all have our subjective biases, and to be cognizant of those is really important. But I think you know, in any story, I am absolutely held accountable. I'm not just taking pictures of. You know, crowds and nameless, you know, people without a name. These are people that know me, know my number, know how to get a hold of me. And I mean, yes, um, there's there's ethics involved in that too. And I am just the the thing is, I try to be absolutely transparent and honest with people and say, hey, I you know, I need to tell this story and um, I want to hear your opinion. I'm not taking sides here, but I you know, I just I try to personalize it, absolutely. I think that that is so much more powerful than trying to tell these generic stories.
0: You tell a story in a video that I was watching about uh, the impact of uh, global warming and uh, weather changes in the community in Bangladesh.
1: Momtaz, yeah. yeah. I I, I spent a a week with this woman, Momtaz. Is that what you're talking about? Yes, yes. Can you
0: tell us about about that, especially within the context of what we – of what we've just been talking about
1: yeah, I mean, what would you like to know exactly well, how how did I uh, well,
0: I was hearing the story about how she you know approached you, she saw you, and she you know said something very accusatory to you that you responded to, and that helped shape the 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 story that you were going to tell
1: yeah, so you know I arrived and and basically um. The climate is changing, (laughs) you know, whether – I know there's all all this debate, but, you know, there are people being impacted today, and I actually didn't realize how severe it is until I got to Bangladesh. I mean, we talk about climate change all the time, and I don't – you know, I don't feel. I still have running water, and I don't feel it um, in the same way. The people that are uh, living closest to these places that are really heavily impacted, they feel it in very, very tangible ways. They have to walk farther to get their water every day. They're um, they're dealing with these horrific uh, cyclones, and they're you know all of their food being flooded, flooded, and um, with salt water. So it's it's a real life and death situation. So I I arrived in this village and um, these women actually came up and they said, oh, you're doing a story about this? Well, aren't you the reason we're having all these problems? Because you're from the West and you guys are the ones causing all of this. Which was absolutely true. I mean, they live so close to the land. They're not driving around in cars and, um, you know, they contribute very little to climate change. We actually in the West... um, do much more to, um, to do that. So they came in with, um, a real, uh, you know, they were not happy that I was there. And I said, you know what, let me hear you. Let's put a microphone on you and let's hear your story because you're right. And I want to hear your truth. And, and that's what I do. You know, I mean, I, I think the important thing as a journalist is you will, you will be attacked all the time. People, you know, I've covered lots of stories where people, you know, I, I'm basically a symbol of, of their enemy in a lot of ways, what, whether it's a war or climate change. And I have to first thing is not take it personally um, and just listen. Listening is essential and not try to, you know, um, get into to the debate with them and, and um, try to defend myself. Or I think you just have to listen
0: If you are interested in street photography and will be in Los Angeles on April 25th, join me for a day for my workshop in downtown Los Angeles, held through the Los Angeles Center of Photography. I'll introduce you to the world of street photography and then we'll travel to downtown Los Angeles. We'll then return to the studio for a critique of some of the images that you've produced for the day. It's a complete experience that I don't want you to miss. Sponsor limited, so sign up today by either visiting the Los Angeles Center of Photography website or clicking on the link in the show notes or on our website. I hope to see you there. I, I was wondering when I was taking a look at your work and you've told some amazing stories of some very difficult situations. And I, and I was thinking, you know, how how do people react to you when you go to a like a dinner party of people who are not in like the journalism industry. And you explain what you do and, and how do people sort of respond to, or how do you, how do you think people, what do people not get when they, when you start talking to them about what you do?
1: (laughs) Yeah. I don't even try to have them get me. I think that, um, You know, I think that there's so many things people can relate to. And I search for those in every aspect of my life because my life isn't that, that different. I mean, um, and I think that's the important thing is just finding the things that we all connect on because everybody cares. I mean, to think that, I think that you know we act like people don't care. People care. They want to know more. They're incredibly interested and they want to know all the details and the things behind the scenes that they don't see on the news. So I think um it's always a pretty wonderful experience. I mean um you know of course there are I my life is bizarre and strange in so many ways but um but I think people dinners I love. I mean, yeah, I, I love trying to. You know, I'm about to go to China, and I'm going to be surrounded by adorable um, pandas <laughs> for the next month. Um, doesn't get much um, better than that. But um, you know, people want to know the behind-the-scenes things, and and that's what I, you know, try to. I don't know if that answers your question. Is that what you were getting? Kind at? of,
0: kind of. But uh, let me follow that up with people look at the exact places that you go to meeting pandas meeting you know heads of state all all these things but what what sacrifices do you feel like you've had to make in terms of your your life in order to make this Amazing career that you have coming to parents
1: right right they don't understand the hard work i mean they they don't understand that it's not um I'm not a tourist and I'm not staying in five star hotels and i um you know you go through a lot of hardships whether it's um you know i've been attacked i've been um you know in really dangerous situations too but also i don't want to emphasize those because the amount of those are so small compared to the incredible stories of of you know people that have courage and teach me so, so much. So I think it's been this very humbling experience to to be able to do what I do. And I'm incredibly privileged. So I don't ever forget that. And I don't want to, you know, dwell on the hardships. Of course, every human being who doesn't make sacrifices in their own life. You know, this is a path that I've chosen and I feel, extraordinarily um, privileged to, to be doing what I'm doing. Um, it doesn't come without its trials and tribulations. But hey, who else doesn't have, I mean, sorry, every single person. I meet, um, you know, friends down the street that are mothers um, living in a quiet town who have their hardships. I mean, people just trying to make a living day to day life is not easy for any person that I know. So I just, um, yeah, I don't like to really emphasize the the challenges of what I do. And
0: considering what you've witnessed, you can probably realize that you, you know, your problems are like champagne problems compared to some of the other people.
1: are First world problems. Yeah. And that's exactly right. I mean, it's just so humbling and you just, you know, I come back and, Um, And it's, what's amazing to me is how quickly you get used to your own life and you forget. Um, So I feel so, so lucky to be able to go and be reminded, um, you know, one, you know, not just how lucky, but how connected we all are and how actually we can all make a difference and, um, you know, not to feel hopeless about the world. I actually, I'm so I, I mean, I uh, not to be Pollyannish about it. You know, I I'm not denying that all these things are. You know, it's it's a rough world out there, but um, we all have to keep um, finding ways to. You know, it's not hopeless, and whether you do do things in your own community locally, or try to do things globally, I think actually um, we all have impacts.
0: Do, do you think that that attitude that we sort of all have of living? in you know first world countries that that is makes it a challenge for you to be able to tell the stories of people who don't have the benefit of that kind of privilege
1: well hey things are changing really quickly by the way people are getting connected and i find that incredible the fact that i think technology is going to i'm already seeing the differences everywhere i go and so you know yes i see these stories um about ISIS and, you know, all these terrible things. But I also go back to places that are, you know, I've been visiting for 10, 15 years and I I see changes, really positive changes happening. People are, you know, girls are going to school. People are getting educated. They're having, you know, phones. Phones are absolutely changing the way people live. Kenya has this amazing thing called, um, oh gosh, I'm just forgetting it right now. It's like M m And basically, it's allowing people to sell and buy things using payments over their phone. And it's just revolutionizing their lives. And, um, and you know, I think I've gotten off on a tangent here, but um, tell me your question again. No, it it were was we? just
0: the, this idea that, you know, the, the media, as, as we know it, is a first world institution. And I was wondering whether our own fixation on our own first world problems makes it more difficult to be able to tell the narratives of people who who don't live in our world.
1: Well, that's what I I guess my point is that they are starting to live in our world and to assume that they don't and they're ignorant and they don't know the same things is um, you're going to be in for a big surprise. I mean, I go to the most remote places and people are plugged in, in ways that they never have been. I had this amazing experience where, you know, and, and I think it goes both ways. Like it means that you're also absolutely held accountable for the stories you tell. So for example, I went and did a story in, Kenya recently, and I was photographing, um, you know, this um, uh, this farmer. He, um, you know, I I didn't think he was particularly plugged in. He doesn't have a computer, no internet, and a picture of him was published on the homepage of National Geographic. And I get a text message on my phone from him, you know, 2,000 miles away, saying. Amy, Amy, I'm so excited. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I just heard from all my friends who've been calling me and telling me that I am on the, you know, the homepage. He was so excited. And, and, you know, even the most remote place, people are getting connected. So I think that's one assumption that we need to change pretty quickly. That's going to be very different, even in the next five years. That's an
0: excellent point. Uh, Tell me about how being able to capture video has transformed what you do.
1: Oh, love it. Love it. Love it. I was terrified of it. And, you know, it is absolutely overwhelming trying to learn the technology, but it is, I I encourage people to, to do it because two things happen. One is you literally, you know, we've always said to give the voice to the voiceless and use these, you know, these kind of cliche phrases, but the truth is you really do. You're not just taking pictures, but you're able to let them speak for themselves. You give the microphone to them, quite literally. So that's pretty amazing. The second thing that happens is you become a w- much better storyteller. I I said it earlier, but I um, I think about stories so differently. Shooting films makes me go deeper into every story, and um, and you know i I just think it's a win win for everybody
0: you you feel like it it helps you you know take care of your bottom line, as we were suggesting before that in terms of being able to tell those stories visually and pitch them visually. That oh, the video
1: I didn't even think about that. But, you know, in terms of making a living at this, certainly it's uh, helped me diversify and I can offer so much more now. Every client, almost every client I work for says, we want, you know, we want stills and we want video. And with that comes, you know, uh, you're able to pay the bills and and offer more, you um, so it's definitely, I think in a time when so many people are struggling, my career is actually doing better than I have ever, ever. And I think that that is definitely um, because of my ability to, to use video as well. What was
0: the biggest challenge in, in making that transition? And what advice could you give to people who are mm, who are trying to so do this? So many things. I
1: mean, I think that uh, <laughs> one, basic things, using a tripod, hated using tripods. I never used them before. Um, I'd, I'd sort of go in and just um, shoot whatever I felt and saw. And, and now you really have to have a stable image. And, and so it's just a lot more gear to carry, which is not fun. I liked being more, um, more fluid. And um, once you get over that hump, uh, you know, the other thing is, yeah, just taking the time to Before I just let things happen, now I really think about what I need to cover. And, um, you know, so you have to, you just have to spend more time sort of scripting and, and it takes longer to, to shoot the story. You can't just shoot one picture and you're done, you have to go and shoot multiple angles and make so many different cuts and then transition from one place to another. In a still image and a still story, you can go from one place to the other without transitioning. And with video, you you absolutely have to do that. So, you know, I think that, it's just carrying more gear, thinking about story differently, and slowing down. You know, it, that has actually been a good thing for me. I was always going uh, 100 miles an hour, and um, and it makes me slow down and spend time in one place with one person, and that's a good thing. Yeah, it,
0: it touches on, on something that I've heard you say, that what's essential for telling a story is time, which we talked about earlier, but another thing was patience. Tell us about that. Why why is oh, patience so patience. important?
1: Oh, definitely <laughs> yeah, I mean those are the most important ingredients um you cannot um, you know you just have to not react and and be patient with people and let them tell their story. I think we come in like a you know with a We sort of shoot away and ask a million questions. And I think one thing to remember, especially when you're interviewing people for video, is to just, you know, let silence take over. Silence is a good thing because people need time to think about what they want to say. And I think we have this need to like fill the, the silence with questions. And that has been a really great lesson to me to just... Like let 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 people have space to to tell their own story and narrative and the most powerful things come out if you just give it time. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend another photographer for listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why?
1: Oh, the list is so, so long. But, um, you know, I would say the one person who, she said so many wise things to me a long time ago. And they, and the funny thing is that they resonated only like 15 years later. And I think, huh, Susan Mizell told me a lot of important things as a young, younger version of myself that now are making complete sense. So I, you know, she's really a a hero to me. I would recommend Susan Mizellis.
0: Well, thanks for that. And and where can people go to find out more about you and all your work?
1: Oh, thank you. Well, um, I think my website, I'm redesigning it. So in a couple months, it'll have a lot of information and a lot of educational material to help young photographers or old photographers. Um, Yeah, just uh, people. I, I also feel like you have to give back and leave the the door open for those behind you. So um, you can go to my website or National Geographic. I have a few stories coming out there soon.
0: Right. Well, Amy, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure having the chance to talk to you finally.
1: Oh my gosh. Thank you. This is a wonderful opportunity and, um, and yeah, good luck with your program.
0: Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. The Candid Frame is brought to you by the generous contributions of listeners like you. To help support the work we do at TCF, please take the time to make a donation via PayPal for $10, $20, $50, or more. Your contributions have helped to make the show what it is. I'd also like to thank our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And our music is provided by Kevin who whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And this is Ibarianx, and X, and this is The Candid Frame.